the Edible Gardens podcast, where we talk about how your edible garden can also be your beautiful landscape. I'm your host, Nanette Blair. Thanks for joining me. My dream is to make good food accessible to everyone. And in my opinion, the best definition of good food is nutritious, delicious, and safe. And it doesn't get any better than picking fresh fruit, herbs, veggies straight off the plant where you know what went into it from start to finish. Also, you won't find any tomato cages here. As a matter of fact, there's a lot you won't find here, including pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, or any of the other sides. But what you will find here are landscapes that are designed for beauty, reflection, fun, and entertaining, and the list goes on to whatever you want. After all, it's your home your yard and your taste and beauty truly is in the eye of the beholder. Okay, you know that garden you've been thinking about, either the one you already have that just needs a little more oomph or the one that's been in your head for who knows how long. Well, I know you're ready. I know I'm ready. So let's dig in. So what's the one thing that will make all the difference in your garden? And I promise you there is one thing and one thing only. But let's start off by looking at how we see the garden. All the individual problems we have that we've been told we have for about the last 60 to 80 years because the problems that we have are relatively new. We're talking decades, not centuries. Um, the most frequent asked questions from garden rookies or even experienced gardeners are about pest management, watering, uh, or water retention, plant nutrients, aka soil fertility, or what kind of fertilizer do I use? You know, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, calcium, iron, and so on. Also, I hear a lot, what kind of soil should I buy to put in my new raised beds? Should I get compost? Should I get topsoil? Should I get a combination? Or how do I change the texture of the soil that I already have? Like, uh, how do I deal with sandy soil? Or how do I deal with clay soil? I know soil is not the sexiest place to start when you talk about having a beautiful garden with lots of bounty and all the things that we know we want, but it's literally the foundation of the garden, right? And in order to understand what that one thing is that will make all the difference in the garden, we really have to step back and look at the big picture. So if we ask ourselves the big question, and I mean in a holistic way, what are all of the things we're trying to accomplish? What are all of the things that we're having problems with? Then that kind of gives us a hint to what the one thing is. It really does. Um, but before I tell you what that is, I have to ask you a question. And I have to take you on a journey. I, I have to. But the question is, do we all know down deep inside that mother nature has an infinite wisdom. Do we as a society still remember that? Um, and what I mean is we as mere mortals will probably, this is what I believe, we as mere mortals will probably never ever know everything there is to know. Do people still believe that? I guess that's my big question. If you're like me and you don't believe that we have it all figured out, I will tell you that Mother Nature does give us clues and all we have to do is observe. 
and not work against the laws of nature. And I guess I've given you the hint that that's pretty much what it is, but just stick with me. And I know this sounds kind of frou-frou-y. I, it's true. Uh, we can observe the patterns of, um, say, a typical garden. So if we look at the patterns of nature in a typical garden that's tilled every year and that has to be tilled every year because it becomes compacted, well, that's kind of a pattern right there, right? So you have a, a tilled garden that has to be tilled every year. So what is that telling you? Well, there's a very scientific, non-fruity-fruity reason for this, but we don't have to get out any kind of fancy equipment to know that the soil is compacted, right? All we have to do is get out a shovel. A shovel will give you the answer. And if you've ever tried to dig in compacted soil, you know what I'm talking about. And there's this is why a lot of people will pull out the tiller. But there's a, a much easier way to fix this. Um, but the, the typical tilled garden has to be fertilized every year because there's not enough nutrients there. The typical garden has to be sprayed for pests every year because most of the, um, the biology that's there are pests. The typical garden must be weeded every year. And there's a very good reason for this, but I'm going to get into that in a minute. But this is the point where you swear this is the last year. I'm not doing this again. Weeds are not fun. As a matter of fact, I think I've hurt myself a couple of try times trying to pull a weed because weeds have a very long taproot. So that's a typical tilled garden, but an established landscape, the typical suburban landscape that has trees and shrubs and ground cover, uh, it doesn't need that kind of attention. You don't have to fertilize, you don't have to spray, you don't have to do a lot of things that you normally have to do. But when we look at a typical suburban landscape, you know, most people don't do a lot in the way of inputs. And when I say inputs, I mean time. They don't spend a lot of time out there because they're not having to work that hard out there. And they're not having to spend a lot of money on amendments like fertilizers and pesticides and herbicides and fungicides and all the, even all the organic stuff, you know, fish oil and lava rock and rock dust and all the thing, all of the ways that you can spend money in the garden that are just so not necessary, but they're not having to do that because this is an established landscape. Well, if you've ever been to a mature forest, it's pretty much the same way. And I'm sure you've been to a mature forest at some point in your life, or at least I hope so. It could have been a national or state park, or when you went camping with your grandparents as a child, or maybe taking a hike through the woods, or it could just be that it was a wooded area on someone, uh, someone's property somewhere where there was a lot of trees that had been growing for several years. If not, let me just go ahead and take you on a virtual walk through a mature forest. First, when you get um, to the edge of the forest, you're walking on this path and it's, it's very hard. You can drive a bicycle on it, right? Because it's compacted because it's the beaten path. That's where the saying comes from, the beaten path, <laughs> because a lot of people have walked there. You're going to come up against an edge first. In a true mature unadulterated forest, you're going to have some sort of a wall there that you have to climb through to get to the edge. I mean, nobody's been tearing down vines and things like that, but it's going to be, first of all, you'll probably see some grasses and some wildflowers and some low growing shrubs and some low growing plants. 
but then you're going to hit a wall and it's usually thorny green briars or poison ivy or blackberries, depending on where you live, um, what the climate's like. But I remember the first time we walked the property on uh, the property that we now live on, there's a few acres in the back that we had to do some pretty impressive yoga moves that I didn't even know I had in order to get through the edge of this. You know, you're stepping up high, you're twisting, you're turning. But I mean, it would have been difficult to even get through there, through there with a machete. But when we got up inside, it just looked like a big opening underneath. There was no more low growing things on the ground. There was nothing we had to step over. We could just walk freely. And the reason for that is that there was a lot of leaf litter on the ground, you know, from the trees shedding leaves every season, the canopy layer being so thick that it didn't let any light shine through, right? There was, say, some big deadfall on the ground. Say a whole tree died or a big limb broke off for whatever reason, maybe too much wind or ice or something. But there was an opening of sunlight kind of in the middle of the little forest. I'm calling it a forest. It's really wooded area, <laughs> but I'm calling it a forest. In that patch, now there was something new, a different layer. There was a, it was kind of a shorter, brushy, woody, shrubby layer. You know, like you would think of in your landscape, just shrubs, if you think about it that way. So you have the tall trees that we would call a canopy layer or an overstory layer. layer. And then you have a shorter layer that I would call an understory layer. And then you have a layer that's kind of a, a brushy, woody, shrubby layer. And then you also had the vine layer. And I think I already said the mulch layer or the ground cover layer. And then you have a root layer or a tuber layer. That's everything that's underneath the soil, right? Kind of like daffodils or tulips would grow. You have stuff that's underneath the soil. That's another layer. And I don't know if I covered them all. For me, another very important layer is the wildlife. So if you're walking through and you, you hear a lot of that layer, if you don't see it, you hear birds chirping, you hear insects buzzing, you hear something ruffling around or rustling around in the leaves kind of beside you and you're wondering, is that a snake? Is that a rabbit? Is it a skunk? Is it a bear? Is it a dog? What is that? But you know, you hear all these sounds, but then there's another layer of wildlife that you can't see. And I almost titled this the life you cannot see because, and there's another hint for what it is, but there's all the creepy crawlers right down in the soil that are breaking down all of the the deadfall and the leaves that hit the forest floor they're breaking it down and they're basically composting it in place you would see earthworms and you would see beetles and you might see scorpion you might see spiders but there's a lot of life you can see if you kind of pull back the layers or if you were trying to sleep there at night but then there's also another component of the wildlife layer and that is where you find your microorganisms so you have your macroorganisms that are worms and beetles and things like that and then you have billions and billions and billions of microorganisms that would be bacteria protozoa microorthopods nematodes and the list goes on what they're doing and so if you remember if you think back when you were on that beaten path 
you the soil felt hard under your feet right but then when you step out into the forest floor you feel it feels different under your feet it feels spongy it feels like you're walking on a tempurpedic mattress that's because all of those organisms have built a structure it almost feels like a non-structure because it feels so airy but that's the beauty of that structure they've created aerobic system not anaerobic but they've created a, I'm going to say this because it makes it sound like anaerobic. It's the opposite of anaerobic. It's aerobic. So aerobic meaning with air, anaerobic meaning non, with not, no air. <laughs> Did I say that right? But it has a different kind of biology. So as gardeners and for a mature forest, we see and we want an aerated system and aerobic system not anaerobic I don't know why that's so hard for me to say <laughs> you want it with air that's what I'm trying to say grammatically speaking we need to put something I think it's grammatically correct put to say an aerobic system but it it changes literally changes the meaning if you say and so I'm gonna have to think of a different word that you put but we're looking for the word aerobic meaning aerated okay got off on my illiterate self there but <laughs> let me just say that right here this is where it gets really really good and exciting for me and I'm gonna geek out a little bit but I want to tell you that you don't have to have a PhD in microbiology I certainly do not and I would never hold myself up to be any kind of an expert and you don't have to have a chemistry although there's a lot of chemistry going on down there you've heard of photosynthesis right we all learned about it in elementary school we just have to have an appreciation and a respect for the fact that it's there. And that really is it there. There's the one thing that makes all the difference is just having a respect and an appreciation for the life we cannot see. And I almost titled this episode that because my daughter was telling me about a book that she read that was really, really good. And it's called All the Light We Cannot See. And for me, what I heard was all the life we cannot see because I've always got my head in the, the soil, right? But it, it really is true. There's That's the one thing is to have a respect and appreciation for the fact that there is life there and it's doing a job. Mother Nature sent it there and there is a law that all of this biology follows. So if we go and we take a look around at the virtual forest that you're walking in, no one's taking care of it. No one's spraying pesticides. No one's pulling weeds. Weeds, that's because there are no weeds. They're not there. No one's spraying fertilizers. But yet, in my little forest in the back of my property, I found wild plum trees with plums on them, with um, pecan trees, I found grapes in the way of muscadine grapes, but still they're grapes. I We use them. We make jelly and stuff out of them. I found cucamelons. I found all kinds of uh, other wild edible plants. And when I say wild, I mean uncultivated. But just a quick story about the cucamelons. So I found these little cucamelons, and if you don't know what they are, they taste like a cucumber like a sour cucumber they're also called Mexican sour gherkins but they're about the size of the first joint of your thumb and they look like a tiny watermelon sometimes I think they're called mouse melons as well 
but I found them growing up deep in the middle of the forest. And if you buy these seeds, and these things are hot right now. Everybody wants cucamelons. They're kind of like the designer crop for, uh, for edible gardens right now, which is really cool because they are really good and I really love them and they grow like crazy. But they grow on a vine that's hair thin. And I do not know how this was, but I, when I walked up on this um, wall of cucumelons, so they grow up, they're a vine, they grow up in the tree, and it was hair thin. I cannot figure out how it got from the ground up to the branch that was way over my head on this hair thin vine. I just cannot figure it out. But it was almost like I walked up into a fairy garden. Anyway, uh, I'll let you know later in another episode how I do my plant identification because that's really important. I'm very, very careful about something that is purported to be medicinal or edible. But I just thought that was cool because on the package, uh, when you look these up on the internet, it says grow in full sun. Well, these were deep in the middle of the forest. Anyway, it's a mystery to me. But let's just say that this mature forest got disrupted somehow. It could be a hurricane, it could be a tornado, a flood, or a fire, or even a bulldozer. But whatever the case may be, it's brought down to bare soil, and this is typically where we start as gardeners, right? There is an often repeated saying, almost a mantra really, amongst um, gardeners. They say that Mother Nature hates bare soil. Hates a strong word, but they say, hates bare soil. And what they mean by this is if you don't plant something there, she will. She'll do it for you. And these gardeners know that it's always, always, always going to be a weed. It's going to be something you really don't want there. And there is a very cool and scientific reason for that. And this reason is backed by lots and lots of data. But the weeds are there because the structure of the mature forest is gone. So Mother Nature has sent the weed there because that soil's gotten compacted or it will be compacted and it has the right biology and right chemistry going on that we don't really have to know. It's none of our business. Um, but it sends down a long taproot and its job is to break up the soil. So there's another really famous, if you call it that, uh, mantra with gardeners and that is that they will say that a weed is just a plant out of place. And I think someone famous said that before. And, you know, everybody believes this. It's like, oh, yeah, well, just because somebody else doesn't like that weed, I like it, like a dandelion or whatever. But that's not true. The reason that the weed is there in is that it is a pioneering species. So if you stop thinking about them as weeds and maybe even do a little research, but you'll notice these. You'll know what a pioneering species is because it has a long taproot. And there's a lot of them. There's a lot of different kinds of pioneering plants, pioneering species that they will send down that long taproot. Their job is to break up the soil. They'll even send so that it's vertical and horizontal. But they'll send out these fibrous hairs that go out sideways and... It's breaking up the soil that way. It's starting to create aeration. And then it wakes up that biology that has just kind of gone dormant. It's probably not dead. There's a lot in there and it just is not awake because the plant that it likes to communicate with, likes to live with, likes to feed on, likes to get food from, is um, 
not there yet. So it's just kind of asleep, these other bacteria. So what we can do to kind of trick it into believing that we're in the next phase of ecological succession, it, but the, um, the next phase is going to be more grasses. And you think about when you're out in nature, maybe you saw a savanna or a meadow or a prairie before you walked up into the forest. And the next phase from that, and that's kind of what we call early to mid-succession, you'll start to see a shrubby layer. And things are starting to get a little taller, a little woodier, and then you'll see a lone tree out there, and then you'll see another tree grow beside it. But nature's just trying to heal itself. It's just trying to come back around to a mature forest. That's what it always wants to get back to. So with that being said, so in a mature forest, you have the overstory layer, the canopy. You have the understory layer, shorter trees. You have a shrubby layer. Then you have a vine layer. You have a forest floor covering layer or a, a ground covering layer or the mulch layer, or it could be a green mulch. You have a root layer. You have your wildlife above pooping and doing and eating and trimming your trees for you. And then you have a wildlife layer down in the soil that's going to be your micro and macro organisms. You're going to have earthworms and beetles on the macro side. You're going to have your other layer is the root layer and your fungal layer. So your fungi or fungi is what is so important. Now, something that people always used to say all the time that I've been hearing this for a lot of years, you don't want to till the soil because you're going to kill all that microbiology that's in there. And I used to think, how can they kill microbiology, right? It'd be like saying, well, if I put a virus in a blender, it's going to kill it. Well, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so it's not until later that I put it together with, well, you're basically, you're breaking up that fungal and root layer that's, that's helped to hold all the structure together. So when you till, you're basically chopping up the transportation system. You're chopping up the communication system. You're chopping up the food pantry system and all of this fungal hyphae that's gone from root to root and through the, through the ground and created an, a web, virtually and literally, a web of saying, okay, you know what? I have some sugars here. You want some? Sure, plant says. I'll take some. Here's some exudates. Here's some proteins and sugars and carbohydrates. You can take those and I'll take some of what you got and you know, when you come back next week, yeah, I'll take some calcium. I'm good for now, but it's all there. <clears throat> now, I'm going to geek out. If I haven't freaked you out already, I'm going to geek out of here for just a minute, but this is the good stuff. This is the good stuff. Please don't tune me out. So how it works, and this is so exciting to me. I just love this, but the bacteria which is the base of all life, really, when you think about it. That's who moves in first and establishes and colonizes. <clears throat> but the bacteria comes in and it creates an enzyme, which is a catalyst that pulls out the nutrients from your sand, silt, and clay. And they'll pull out all that your garden needs, all of the fertilizer, all of the fertility. And I heard this the other day. On one of these medical shows where they were saying in your gut, and I hear this all the time now, 
but in your gut, you know, you have the probiotics. You have, or you want to have the probiotics. You always want to be encouraging the probiotics in your stomach and in your intestines because the it helps break down the food you eat, right? And it helps you have a good digestive system, but it also helps you to absorb nutrition. And it's the same way in the soil. So I think Dr. Joel Furman calls it a biofilm that's in your gut. I've heard Dr. Elaine Ingham, who's a soil specialist, call it uh, a glue. And to me, that kind of so sounds the same way. So in the soil, I just call, also call it a biofilm. But they've built all this structure that creates a protection against disease-causing insects. And that's why you don't have to worry so much. If you just leave nature alone, you let her do her thing, you let her repair herself with a little help that we're going to talk about, and that is to just go ahead and plant stuff because when you plant stuff, you, you're you awakening the, the chemistry and the biology that's dormant there. If you go ahead and plant perennial plants or brassicas and just put a lot of diversity in there, give it a lot of little stuff, you know, a lot, a lot of different things, then it wakes up all that diversity in the biology in the soil. It wakes up all that chemistry in the soil, which they both are go hand in hand. Yeah, if you can't tell, this is so exciting. And I really didn't want to do this show because it's so important and I was afraid I was going to leave something out. So I reserved the right to come back to this and say, you know what I forgot to say, but I also didn't want to do it because it's so important because I know this is a show that I'm going to re be referring back to on an ongoing basis. I know I'm going to say, go back and listen to this episode if you don't want know what I mean about ecological succession, which that's what we've been talking about today. You have the mature forest, you have down to bare soil, you can trick the biology that's there that you can see. That bacteria is going to create that enzyme, it's going to eat and feed on those nutrients, create soil fertility, it's going to poop. The other larger microorganisms like protozoa and nematodes and Microarthropods, they're going to come eat that, and then they're going to eat that, and it's this, that's why they call it the soil food web. That's why it's a chain. And then earthworms are going to eat that, and then the spiders are going to eat that, and, you know, they're all feeding on each other, and it really is a matter of competition. When you have bare soil, like we create in a tilled, regular, typical garden, you basically just have a high concentration of uh, population of bacteria. So along comes Mother Nature and says, oh, this is a prime habitat for weeds. The weeds are going to go down, do its job, break up the soil. So we've taken care of the weeding problem if we say we're going to trick it into thinking that it's more like a mature forest by giving it compost tea or a compost extract or just good quality compost. Now there is a difference between good quality compost and bad quality compost or just so-so compost. And you can see this by looking at it under a microscope. Is there a good diversity that's awake and alive in there? Do you have nematodes, microarthropods? Do you have ciliates? Do you have flagellates? Do you have protozoa? Do you have, or do you just have a lot of bacteria? And that's what I see when I go, and I have done this. I've gone and bought compost from, I'm not gonna say where, Compost, we want an aerobic environment, right? Not an anaerobic environment. 
So we want an aerated environment. <clears throat> when you go buy a bag of compost at the garden center or wherever you go, it's going to be in a bag. Well, that in itself is not a good um, habitat for aerated microbiology, right? It's going to be bag stacked on top of bag stacked on top of bags. And when you open it up and it, it's wet and it's all compacted, well, you've basically allowed the anaerobic microbes to outcompete the aerobic microbes. The aerobic microbes need air. Anyway, <laughs> but I'm just going into this a little bit right now. Now we're going to talk about a lot about it later. That's just one reason. Another thing is if you go buy something out of the store that's in a jug that's all sealed up, it's under, I mean, I could make compost tea and it could be great compost tea. And then I could put it in a bottle, put a lid on it with no aeration, sell it to the store. When I sold it to them, it was the best product you could have possibly gotten. But then it's been sitting on their shelf for, it doesn't even really take days. It just takes hours for all of that biology just to go back to sleep and be dormant. One thing that you can do is just have the appreciation that the biology is there. Kind of a subcategory of that is just start making your own compost. And I know that that's the one thing that a lot of people will not do. I hope not. I hope I'm wrong. But a lot of people think it's a lot of work which I get a great workout. I use my iWatch and I, I put it on and I know I've recorded seven, burning 750 calories at one time. But really the only compost you can trust is the compost that you make at home. Unless you have a really knowledgeable neighbor down the road that's willing to give you some of their black gold or their brown gold. Um, I know I've had people ask me for my compost and I'm like, I'm, I need that. You know, what do you mean? It's like asking me for my toothbrush or something. <laughs> It's like asking me to come live in my house. You know, it's, I, I can't make enough of it for myself. Maybe that's what I should do, go into the compost business. But I mean, again, you, if you put it in bags and you sell it to the store, then it's really not good quality compost. Maybe it was in the beginning, but now it's not anymore. Anyway, I went on a little rant there and I digress. But if you just have the respect for the fact that the biology is there, that's the one thing that makes all the difference. If you if you have that respect, then you won't go and till. If you have that respect, then you won't go and put the pesticides down it, because, you know, it's kind of like an antibiotic, right? They always say that in the human body, and I always do this, I go back and I refer, I compare, see the correlation between the human body and the soil. There's so many similarities. But in the human body, they say you don't want to take a lot of antibiotics because if you take a lot of antibiotics, it's going to kill not only the bad bugs that are in your system, the viruses, bacteria, whatever it is, you're also killing all the good stuff. And that's why they don't want people to take too many antibiotics. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nurse. I don't know. This is what my limited knowledge, because I hardly take anything, honestly. But, um, but if you put down herbicides, pesticides, you're killing, they're indiscriminate killers. You're killing all the good stuff with the bad stuff. That's another thing that we covered. So I want to make sure that I go to all the things that I promised you that we were going to cover. And that is, oh, okay, water. So if you have good quality soil with good quality biology and good quality aeration, I know it sounds counterintuitive, with good quality chemistry, that's going to hold 
10 times its weight in water. And I may be wrong about that. It might be 100 times its weight in water. But when your roots go down deep into the soil, you don't have to worry about a drought. So first of all, all that structure that's in the soil, you know, all those hallways and pathways and rooms and swimming pools and high rises and all that aeration, all those castles and those castle walls, they're building structure and they're holding on to aeration. At the same time, they're holding on to water. They're also fierce competitors when it comes to keeping all of the diseases and pests at bay. So we covered pest management, we covered watering, and then the nutrients, I think I'm pretty sure that I said the bacteria creates an enzyme that acts as a catalyst that pulls all of those micro and macro nutrients that you need, that your plants need out of the soil and puts it into, and they, they eat and they poop and they eat and they poop and other things come and eat along and eat and poop and, and the mycorrhizal fungi then communicates, it's a communication system, kind of an interpreter between the roots and all this other stuff that's going on, you know, the calcium, the iron, the potassium, the phosphorus, all that stuff. And it's feeding those roots in a bioavailable form. And that's why spending money in the garden is not only unnecessary, it's also detrimental because all of those chemical fertilizers that you're putting into the soil are also creating salts because they can't put just pure nitrogen into a bag and sell it to you. They can't put just pure phosphorus into a bag and sell it to you. Same way with all these. They have to turn it into a chemical form that the plants can uptake. But, and this is so ironic, but I read this. This was actually a handout in the Master Gardener's class. And they said that it was a, a report by the EPA that said that home fertilizers are the largest source of pollution. I think this study was done in 1995 or 1999 the biggest source of pollution in the country, in the United States. And that's because your plant can't take up 100% of what you put down. As a matter of fact, the EPA's report said 30%. 30% is available for the plant to take up. I'm sorry, it said 40%. But Dr. Elaine Ingham of the Soil Food Web, she's got a PhD in microbiology, says 20%. I'm inclined to lean towards what she says. But for the sake of argument, let's put it down the middle. Let's th- say 30%. So if you're putting down chemical fertilizers and you're spending $1, 30 cents is actually working. The other 70 cents is literally leaching down out of the soil or running off into the storm drain. And so you are wasting 70 cents. But not only are you wasting all that time and money, it's also damaging the soil in the way of salts. It's turning, it's desert, I don't know, desertifying, <laughs> desertification. It's it's turning your soil into a desert. It's putting salt down there. And I think we all know what happens to a plant if you put salt on it, right? It's not going to be too happy. But so that covers pest management, watering, plant nutrients, The structure, I want to say something about the structure of the soil. When you have a sandy soil or a clay soil, if you're lucky, you have a loam soil, which is kind of in between. But if you have 
one of these that are on one extreme end of the soil triangle, sand, silt, or clay. It's really hard to deal with. And if you have these, you know why. And we can talk about that later. But you can change the way that the soil behaves. You can change the structure of the soil, but you can't change the texture. Because whatever you have there, you have there. And you need to learn how to grow where you're planted, right? So this texture is the sand, silt, and clay. The structure is how that's arranged. So if you want to learn more about there's lots and lots of videos out there about that on YouTube, but you can change the structure of your soil by just letting that biology and chemistry do its thing, letting mother nature do its thing. I'm sure we're going to talk a lot more about compost and all of these things that we talked about today, but oh gosh, I was just so nervous to do the show because it's so important to have a respect for all the life we cannot see, to have an appreciation for the fact that there's a party going on down there and we're not invited. And as we wrap up today's show, I want you to know this podcast is dedicated to you. If you're searching for a better source of food for yourself and the ones you love, I'm inviting you to come along on this journey with me. And if you don't want to miss any future episodes, you can hit that subscribe button and let's all figure out together how we can put delicious, nutritious, and safe food on the table. And remember, your edible garden can also be your beautiful landscape. Until next time, have a great week, everybody. Bye for now. Thank you.